welcome to Artist Materialist, the podcast about that long read you didn't have time to read. I'm Susanna, an artist and graphic designer. I'm Dan, a material scientist. And today, for episode 30, we are talking about an article from The Atlantic titled Everything You Wear is Athleisure by Derek Thompson. And this is an article I think we both found through different ways. Um, but when I brought it up to my husband, he was not even familiar with the word athleisure. Because if you don't generally follow fashion or fashion news, I guess you wouldn't necessarily be. So how would you define athleisure? That's a hard word to say. <laughs> uh, athleisure is essentially wearing yoga pants everywhere. Yep. Wearing clothes that, that would be considered exercise clothes, but not to exercise, to lounge around in. Because there have been previous episodes of this. You, we can all imagine uh, picturing people wearing track suits everywhere before. Yes. <laughs> and we, there was the whole, in the uh, 90s into the 2000s, there was kinds of clothing, like the juicy couture and everything written on butts. <laughs> But that wasn't quite athleisure. But now that it's yoga pants, it's athleisure. That's right. It wasn't any particular category of clothing before. There was also the rugby shirts in the 90s I was thinking oh, of, too. Oh, yes. Along with those hideous track suits. <laughs> but as uh, one of the people interviewed for this article points out, her name is Deirdre Clements, and she is a fashion historian. At the University of... Nevada, Las Vegas. And she points out that sports clothes have been becoming American fashion since the end of the 19th century. And at first I thought I must have read that wrong. I was thinking, oh, the end of the last century? Sure, of course. Lots of people wore sports clothes. Nike got big, and then I realized she meant the 1890s, not the 1990s. In this interview, uh, she puts forth three specific parts of this trend and I thought those were really excellent points that she had and the first was the technology and that's my area of <laughs> of just the fabric that we have and all of the technological advances we've had in terms of synthetic fabric and spinning technology and that's so that's the first one the second being and this is something I bring up all the time how our vision of fashion and what constitutes being fashionable has to be uh, has to do with being a very healthy person, or as she puts it, Thorstein Veblen's extremely healthy person. <laughs> now, who's Thorstein Veblen? I didn't quite catch that reading through this. I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll have to look that up. There it is. Yes. Okay. This is that's referring to the term. Uh, conspicuous consumption, which I had always thought referred to, for example, wearing a diamond Rolex or designer shoes, but she uses it to refer to people like the, the super fit people in LA who wear belly shirts and yoga pants to show off how fit they are and how much effort they put into looking good. Right, because that is now the conspicuous consumption now that, that all of the luxury brands have, have broadened their appeal and have become mass market, the only way that you can really show off is something that's, that you can only attain with a lot of money or a lot of 
genetic luck. Yes, that's a very good point. I mean, any Yahoo can buy a diamond Rolex, but it takes a lot of free time to go to the gym and look really good or get the plastic surgery (laughs) needed to look that good. And then the third point she makes is the decline of formality, which I think is the one that we're most familiar with and the one that gets bemoaned, this idea that there's less and less formality. Although as I read it, I, I thought that there is a decline in formality among the upper crust. But if you think about what people wore back when clothes were very expensive, they might have just had they just had sort of one set of, of clothing. And so you, that was that had to do for everything or they might have a Sunday best and that's it. What I found interesting was that what was considered sportswear or athletic clothing a um, hundred years ago is now considered formal wear. Because for example, the sports coat that was originally a sporting coat. It wasn't a regular suit jacket because it was designed so that you could comfortably go hunting and, you know, grab your rifle and shoot a grouse without having confining buttons in the way because of the way it opened. And now a sports coat is what you wear to dress up. (laughs) I'd always wondered about where that had come from. And that makes a lot of sense that it was for hunting and then it was comfortable for hunting. So it got used for golf Then it was comfortable for golf and then it got used for all sorts of other things. Yes. Likewise, sports, well, not just sports coats, but polo shirts, which were originally tennis shirts. And I'd heard about that before and the whole story of Lacoste. And then later on, there was the, the Perry, which was the, the sort of rival to Lacoste. And I'd heard about that. But then how the, this article really connects in a linear fashion, this going from the Lacoste tennis shirt to... British polo shirt and then Ralph Lauren polo in the 70s being the polo shirt. And so that's that really going from just uh, Lacoste being from the 20s. So that's a, a pretty all being pretty recent. And now the polo shirt is considered. Well, I mean, I guess up until maybe a year or two ago, the polo shirt was considered that sort of the default. I'm dressed up enough to be business casual or dressed up enough to pass muster shirt for guys because you have to wear a collared shirt for certain occasions or or for um, especially for kids. It's like for school uniforms. There are are some schools where they require you to wear a collared shirt and a polo shirt passes muster as a collared shirt. I wear a polo shirt just about every day for my business casual apparel. And so does George. (laughs) That is, I mean, until it gets too cold and then he switches to long sleeves, but that is, you know, kind of the default guy. I'm dressed up enough shirt, which originally it was the equivalent of wearing, you know, an Under Armour Mm t-shirt, which makes me wonder if maybe when we are grandparents or great grandparents that our grandchildren or great grandchildren will be, you know, wearing Under Armour t-shirts to their weddings <laughs> to be dressed up. Well, there's also certainly polo shirts and golf shirts. You can get a lot of them in these athletic fabrics. And so the technology of those continues to go on. And I struggle with that when I go to buy, especially, say, a plain white polo shirt. And most of them are made out of extremely breathable fabric that's also extremely see-through. <laughs> yes, it's 
if it's for the office, you don't want something that's designed to be, you know, playing tennis in. Right. Well, and the way they described that those clothes became everyday wear was through colleges, because in the 1890s, intramural sports were introduced into college, and people would wear these clothes that were developed to make sports more comfortable, and then they would just wear them to class. Right, and partially because they needed those clothes for the intramural sports, and if they weren't the richest kids, then they wouldn't necessarily spend money on other clothes. So that sort of, if you had to choose where you would spend your clothing money, you'd get it for the activities that required it. Well, and it also mentions there's a little bit of prestige. You know, you're wearing right. your, your rowing sweater to class. It shows that you're on the rowing team. Yes, yes. The, the whole idea of the Letterman sweater and sweater really being initially about sweating because that's what you wore to keep a little bit warmer when you were rowing or, or playing golf. Or football. Or football. And that's something I found very interesting because I have kind of wondered why they called them sweaters. I mean, they do make you sweat if you wear them when it's too warm, but the idea that they were designed to make you sweat is kind of funny. It was back in the day when, you know, you sweated to lose weight because right. you wanted to be thin and fit. So... Well, we still want that, but now we know that you're just losing water weight, and that really doesn't help you. It just makes you dehydrated. And they're still called, usually, I think they're still called hockey sweaters, or they were until recently. I've, I've heard them called hockey jerseys. Well, most things are jerseys, but I think that in hockey it persisted longer oh. than being a sweater. Okay, well, that would make sense, too, because hockey is played in very cold temperatures yes especially if it's it's outside and related to the sweaters and one of the the things it mentions is a vogue article from the 1930s where most uh most young women in college had 12 plus sweaters and they called them sweatshirts there that's something that i was not sure if they meant sweaters or sweatshirts because right. the term seemed used a little bit interchangeably at that point. And I, I guess later, I, I don't know that it mentions it here, but I think it was actually the Champion brand that made the sweatshirt that we know today later okay. on. But the comment about the college women having so many sweaters made me think of this really old, old movie where... Uh, father was trying to win the approval of maybe his stepdaughter and he offered to buy her all these cashmere sweaters and that's how she would buy her way into the she could be part of the the cashmere clique because <laughs> they had enough cashmere sweaters to wear a different one every day of the week and that's how you were really cool I think I remember that I don't remember what movie it was from but I do remember that scene <laughs> yes so going back to where this article started, the whole idea of yoga wear, which is, like you said, where the word athleisure really cropped up to describe modern day sports clothing or athletic clothing worn for non-athletic purposes, or worn for both, people going to yoga class and then just going to the grocery store afterwards. Mm -hmm. And this talks about Lululemon and the guy who developed the Lululemon yoga pants. And now I took dance for many, many years. So I'm pretty familiar with 
you know, the dance clothes that were available. And so I guess I didn't really see anything novel or exciting in all the new yoga pants and things like that that came out because I had seen leggings for years and I'd worn unitards, which is a term nobody uses anymore for years. But apparently the way that they were made was a little bit revolutionary because like you said of the fabrics they used not just regular cotton stretch or straight up spandex but a combination of the two and that's what made them different now back in the um the 80s and 90s i wore spandex dance clothes and that was those are very constricting very um i mean they're shiny too shiny and form-fitting yes shiny and form-fitting and one thing that I don't see mentioned very often in discussions of the popularity of yoga pants is that earlier spandex that were all spandex, spandex lycra and all that, were very shiny and the way that they've been able to integrate them with cotton now is, has made them a lot more flattering mm -hmm. because if you've ever seen anybody of any size in bright fuchsia spandex pants, those things are just never flattering pretty much on anyone. <laughs> whereas, whereas yoga pants are often considered to be very flattering. And I remember even in the early 2000s, and I, would, I was into dance and I would go and take these dance classes and I would see that the women often had these very comfortable looking black they looked like sweatpants but they were a little bit finer they were they were a thinner uh material that just draped very nicely and they looked super comfortable and there was nothing like that remotely available for men at least targeted to men mm -hmm. and so i think that may be one reason why this this chip wilson going to yoga class he shows up and what are these pants? Those look amazing. Yeah, it, it's not something that men were familiar with, but most women were. And that other article you sent me kind of explains why spandex and these comfort fabrics have been slow to make their way into men's clothing. Yeah, so that was uh, another article from The Atlantic called Spandex for Men. Or it's uh, the sneaky way clothing brands hooked men on stretch jeans or jeggings rebranded by Amanda Mole. And that's something that I I kind of guessed this would happen as soon as jeggings started coming out. I thought, boy, it's just a matter of time before they're there for men. And they really were sneaky. I've, I found myself buying some jeans that were uh, marketed. I think I bought some that were marketed as commuter jeans so they're jeans that you could wear on your bike and bike more easily but they were really jeans with spandex in them i wonder if that was part of the idea behind Bluffworks. now i'm gonna have to look that up these were jeans that i not jeans sorry uh, khakis like dress more like business wear mm -hmm. office wear slight dress slightly dressed up you know what i mean yeah the equivalent of khakis but not necessarily khaki colored uh, men's dress pants that were designed to be worn anytime, any place. You could go hiking up a mountain in them and you could wear them to work and they would look just as nice. I got my husband a pair on Kickstarter because they looked really useful because 
in his job, sometimes he does have to, you know, hike up huge flights of stairs or go fix equipment and then go to a meeting in the office all mm-hmm. on the same day. So I thought, oh, that looks useful. And now that I think about it, I wonder if those did have spandex in them. It's, chances are everything <laughs> sneaks in a little bit. It certainly helps. One thing I found funny in, in the article about the men's jeans with stretch in them is part of the backlash to... The idea of spandex in men's clothing was this trend of the selvage jeans, the jeans that were so stiff you could probably break them with a hammer until you wore them long enough, and the idea that you couldn't have comfortable pants and be a macho man, you had to have uncomfortable pants to show that you were truly manly, which is funny because for so long, it has been the idea that women have to suffer for fashion, not men. <laughs> well, these are jeans that they would become comfortable. They would become so comfortable you wouldn't believe it. But you had to put in the time. You had to suffer mm-hmm. for for that comfort. You had to, to the jeans had to haze you. <laughs> and there's uh, for more on that. There's a the, a great series, ninety nine percent invisible, called Articles of Interest, and there's a whole episode on on blue jeans and they go into the selvage denim and all the things about it and why most jeans are not sold that way and they get pre-worn first that was a trend actually that i really loved when they came out were the stretch jeans of the early 90s i don't remember what they called them i think just stretch jeans they weren't called skinny jeans then but they were essentially jeggings and they were so comfortable and they were great. And then they went out of style and the, the baggy, heavy denim stuff came back in style in the you know, early 2000s. But I was very excited when the skinny jeans came back around because those spandex jeans are really comfortable. Well, I'm glad that if, if there have to be more slender jeans, I'm glad that there is some elastic in them because when the first round of skinny jeans for <laughs> men came out about eight years ago or so, uh, I, I cannot physically wear them. And so that made it a lot harder to find jeans that were not really horrible looking jeans. <laughs> and so now the elastic ones, that does help. Whenever I think about how clothing keeps continuously getting more and more casual, I tend to think a lot about science fiction movies from the 60s and 70s, like in Star Trek, where what people wore looked very, well, it was designed to look futuristic and space age and modern and all that, but really it is almost like pajamas. It's, you know, they're wearing the stretchy pants and the comfortable shirt. And it's the idea that people are going to be wearing these more comfortable pajama-like clothes in the future. And it's not just in Star Trek. I've seen it in um, Soylent Green. Uh, I'm going to miss that one okay but I, I think with with star trek in particular that it, it looked kind of pajama like but at the same time it was quite stiff to the point where there's this famous thing the picard maneuver yes where the the fabric was would kind of roll up when they sat down so when they stood up they had to kind of tug on it to to straighten it out and it I, very synthetic fabric and i think the modern synthetic fabrics have far outshined what was available at that time 
Well, it seems like we are kind of going in that direction to some degree, getting more casual and blurring the line a lot between what's acceptable for sleepwear and what's acceptable for exercising and what's acceptable for just everyday mm -hmm. wear. Now, I don't know that there are a lot of um, office jobs or just jobs in general where you can wear yoga pants to work, but I don't think that day will be far off where it's more common. Especially working from home and uh, just, yeah, there's, why, why dress up if, unless you have to? But I think there is one side note with all of these synthetic fabrics is the increasing concern about microplastics, especially when they get laundered. I didn't realize that synthetic fabrics were a source of microplastics. There's some thought that they may be the biggest source. Well, there's every every time somebody talks about something being a source of microplastics, they always say it's the biggest source of microplastics. <laughs> but so I've I've seen recently things about cars, especially car tires, r tire rubber. But I don't know if that qualifies or not. But certainly microplastics. Every time they get washed and laundered and they rub up against something, just like there's lint that comes off of cotton clothing, there is some amount of the fibers get torn off or brushed off or abraded off, and that will be very small bits of plastic. And if they're being laundered, it would go into the water supply. That yeah. makes sense. It would not be filtered out because it's so tiny. Had had not thought of that at all. So another thing that they mention in this article only briefly, but is linked to in... Another Atlantic article from the original one we read is about how Nike turned running shoes into fashion. And that's another part of the whole athleisure thing is making what were originally, you know, sneakers, just these rubber soled shoes for running, these sports shoes are now everyday wear for so many people for every situation. They're just considered normal shoes. They're not just sports shoes anymore. Mm-hmm. And and it points out that the first rubber soles came out in, again in the 1890s and were first maybe used for tennis and so a lot of people still call them tennis shoes and in the, in the UK they call them trainers. Yes. I wear my Converse All-Stars all the time and have for years but I don't play basketball at all. And those were originally basketball shoes. But nowadays those are so... They're so low-tech that I don't know if anyone really wears them for basketball anymore. I'm sure Converse probably has some fancy specialty basketball shoes, but their regular old all-stars are more of an everyday shoe mm -hmm. to wear with anything. Well, I think once you get into shoes, there's all sorts of strange disagreements between people about what constitutes the best shoe, and I think there are still some... Converse all-star proponents that say that's really what the best shoe is to wear. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Low-tech sometimes is best, just like the people who prefer to run barefoot. Or the uh, or in sandals. The, the Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and in some cases, tennis shoes or sneakers um, have gone super high fashion. I mean, you can buy... Air Jordans that cost a thousand dollars, off whites that cost you know two thousand dollars, 
no problem. Mm-hmm. And you're not buying those. I mean, unless you play in the NBA, you're not buying those. Or even if you do, to just to play basketball, you're buying them to wear to a fancy restaurant or to wear to the club or out on the town or to the red carpet to show off that you can afford $2,000 sneakers. Well, men don't generally carry around handbags, so we need some <laughs> other article of clothing in which to invest a lot of money. I think. And watches are so out now. Watches yes. are for old people, right? <laughs> well, there's there's still a, a, a thriving culture of watches, but I think that's been disrupted somewhat. Mm-hmm. Now that we all look up at the time on our phone. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to mention um, is another article that was linked from here and something that is brought up in this article about athleisure is how women's clothing has been transformed. It originally at the time when men's sport clothing was starting to be developed, women wore these very confining long skirts, even to play tennis. If you look at really old pictures of women playing tennis, they're all wearing long long dresses with long skirts and long sleeves, and they look really impractical to play in, and that was a tennis dress. and. So the development of women's sport clothing has been somewhat behind men's, but the women adapted the men's sport clothing to sort of free them from the strictures of their own fashion. Talks about how women started wearing the men's letterman sweaters until that became popular, and especially bicycling. Yes. The, The way it was phrased here, and then the timelines they put forth, almost conflicted a little bit because you have the the talking about the sweaters in the 1800s and then the cycling coming in the 1890s which is right when the first rubber sold shoes came in so it's really the cycling becoming a big craze in the 1890s and that being when the skirts started getting divided and then going on to other things so it all it really is all sort of at the same time it seems that a lot of things are that way there's sort of a confluence of different events that affect fashion, whether that's clothing or house fashion or food fashion. I read the article about um, cycling clothing, and I know I read another one a while back, but in the one linked from here, it talks about how there were lots of stories in British newspapers about women who were in terrible cycling accidents because their long skirts got caught in the bicycle wheels or in the pedals. And the response of the journalists was usually, how terrible. Women shouldn't cycle. Not, she should have worn different clothing, but clearly women were not meant to cycle. Oh, because of course we are, we may only wear these particular clothes. And at the time, I guess, you know, everybody did wear long skirts like that. But thankfully, bloomers were developed and split skirts and shorter skirts and even shorts, which were scandalous for women to wear, scandalous for men to wear for a while. (laughs) I liked the description of men's shorts being um, cut-off flannels. Cut-off flannels. Yes, where men would take, I guess, their flannel uh, dress pants that they might have worn to go golfing and cut them off, so the original (laughs) (laughs) cut-offs. And there was a a protest. This was in... um, Dartmouth College in 1930, there was a protest among men to allow them to wear their shorts in public when they wished. And 
they were encouraged to come out, and that's where it mentioned the, the old flannels delegged, basically their, their cutoffs, so that they could show that men should be allowed to wear shorts. And it's kind of funny because we are fighting the same battles nowadays when men want to be allowed to wear shorts in the heat, and a lot of office dress codes don't allow them to. And part, and there's always the uh, associated issue of can you buy shorts that are of a length that seems decent? Yes. Now we have the Bermuda shorts, which are, I guess you would say, dress shorts length, which would go down to just above your knee. But you can't necessarily buy those everywhere. Although in Bermuda, it that is really the, what you wear to the office, is the Bermuda short. Yes. I mean, that was why it was invented, correct? Because it was way too hot on that island <laughs> to wear traditional suits. And so, actually, in that respect, women's clothing is a little more forward than men's because we can wear knee-length skirts and even formal shorts have become a big fashion trend in the last few years for women. And we can wear those to work at just about any place with any dress code and nobody seems to care. But of course, if men show up in shorts, everybody seems to get upset. So, so men have to ask for more equality in dress wear. And I remember there was a, sh a school last year, a British school, where the boys protested that the girls were allowed to wear skirts on hot days and it was a heat wave and the boys still had to wear their long pants so mm -hmm. as a protest they wore the, the uniform skirts to school one day yes men's clothing men's formal wear in particular is ill prepared for global warming <laughs> and you know that may be one of the driving factors to make our clothing less formal as we embrace our our yoga shorts and our breezy tank tops in the future in order to deal with the heat that's coming our way. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Artist Materialist. You can find us on the web at artistmaterialist.com. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you found it and share with a friend who is an athleisure aficionado.